Well, good evening, Hallows Church. My name is Andrew, and I serve as a pastor here. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, turn them open to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to continue our journey over these next several weeks of exploring our vision and our values, looking at kind of, kind of recalibrating our identity as a worshiping missional community, as a family of faith here in this city. And last week, Jeff led us through uh, our chief core value, which is gospel clarity, just laying out the beauty of of the gospel and how our commitment to gospel clarity is chief among all our commitments and all our values as a family of faith. And then today we're going to look at another core value. It's, it's what we describe as biblical fidelity, that we are a church that cherishes biblical fidelity or biblical faithfulness. We believe the scriptures to be God's gifted words to us, and we want to be as faithful as possible to study the scriptures and to allow the scriptures to study us, to conform our lives to that which we see in the Bible. And I realize that that may be a challenge for some of us because some of us do not share a very healthy perspective on the Bible. Perhaps you hold a perspective on the Bible that views the scriptures as nothing more than an instruction manual on morality. And so reading the Bible in your mind is like reading a Home Depot instruction manual. It's not very exciting. It's telling you all the things that you should do, telling you all the things that you shouldn't do. And, and so it just becomes very tense. And perhaps your, your life is being choked by uh, that perspective. You don't understand the power that is inherent in the Scriptures because you hold a perspective that is unworthy of the Scriptures. But there are some who perhaps view the scriptures as an instructional manual on morality. Others of us perhaps bring a perspective to the table that says, well, the Bible is nothing but a collection of man-made writings that have been used throughout the history of humanity to oppress people, to abuse people, to manipulate people. Now, to be sure, throughout the history of the human race, that has happened. People have taken the Bible and used the Bible in manipulative, oppressive ways. But we don't want that sin to distort our perspective on the scriptures. And so we want to kind of push that to the fringes and try to get a more healthy understanding of what the Bible is all about and how it is to function in our lives. But then there are others, perhaps, who uh, do not, aren't too interested in the scriptures because you think the Bible is uh, nothing more than just a bunch of uh, inspiring tales similar to Aesop's fables. And so uh, you read the Bible looking at the stories. You recognize there's a lot of stories in the Bible. Some of them are cool and interesting and entertaining. And you read them and they kind of warm you up a little bit. You're, you're inspired by the examples you see in the scriptures. But even then, if you reduce the Bible to a collection of inspiring tales or inspiring stories, you will miss out on the beauty that the Bible has for you. Perhaps the best description of what the scriptures are and what they, how they should function in our lives and the reason why we are committed to biblical fidelity, uh, the best description I've ever read, it comes from a children's Bible. This book right here called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Perhaps you've seen it. We use this Bible. A lot of our families read this to our kids at night. We use this in our kids' ministry and other things. Well, the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, describes the, the purpose and the makeup of the Bible in perhaps the best way I've I've read, and I'm going to share her words with you, but let me also say that if you are new to the Bible, and you're new to this whole idea of Christianity and following Jesus, let me encourage you to read one of these. Read the Jesus Storybook Bible. I think this book should be read by every disciple, because this book helps frame the storyline of the scriptures in ways that, that will help you in your understanding of the actual Bible. Okay, so let me share with you what Sally Lloyd-Jones says about the nature of the scriptures. This is what she says. 
She says, now some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it. But, as you will soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they can be downright mean. She says, no, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It is an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful fairy tale that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is that it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. This story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. So when it comes to our approach to biblical fidelity, our approach to the scriptures, I want you to understand that that describes very well our convictions about the Bible. We believe the Bible tells one story of redemption that centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ. We believe the Bible communicates the greatest message, the greatest reality in the universe. And so we cherish the Bible because the Bible leads us into that story. The Bible gives shape to our lives because of that story. And every story in the Bible gets us there. It gets us into the redemption to be found in Jesus Christ including the story that we're going to look at tonight, the story of what is commonly referred to as the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Now, because the Bible is one big story, you, you can trace kind of the pattern of a good story in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Every story that you read that is worth its salt will usually have three moves in it. Every story usually starts out with some type of orientation or some type of order or some type of harmony. Everything seems to be good. But then there's usually a move in the story where things turn south and instead of harmony and order, there's something causes disorder and disharmony. Something disrupts the peace that perhaps characterized the beginning of the story. And then everything kind of gets haywired and there's a need for some type of redemption. There's need for some type of salvation. There's need for some type of reharmonizing that which went wrong. And when you read the storyline of the Bible, understand that that's pretty much the moves of the scripture. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 begins with God creating the universe, bringing harmony out of the chaos of that, that is in Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. And God speaks and he brings harmony. He brings order. He creates the universe through the, through the word that he speaks. And in this universe, he creates planet Earth. And on this planet, he sets up a place called the Garden of Eden. And then he creates man and woman in his own image. They're called Adam and Eve. And he places them in the Garden of Eden where they enjoy the presence of God in an un- uninterrupted fashion. They have full and immediate access to their creator. They have everything at their disposal. All that is good is available to them. There's only one rule in the garden. And that one rule is that they don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
a, a tree. And sometimes when you look at the story in Genesis chapter 3, you want to make much of the fruit. You want to ask the question, well, what kind of fruit did they eat? Was it a fig? That's my guess. It's a fig. Figs are terrible. Was it an apple? Was it a peach or a pear? We want to center on those types of just really ultimately insignificant details, forgetting that the point of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil has everything to do with the fidelity that mankind was to show their creator. It was an opportunity for them to exercise faithfulness to his word and trust in God's character, but we know the story goes south when they refuse to do so. So they ate of the fruit, and I don't think the fruit had some type of sin juice inherent to it that just kind of injected that into the human condition. I I think it showed human beings rejecting God's order, rejecting God's goodness, rejecting God's word, and then everything went south after that. And so much of the Bible unfolds in that disordered chaos. Most of the Bible unfolds in a fallen world, and that would be the case all the way to the end of the Bible when you get into Revelation chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22, and you see Jesus coming back and installing a new heavens and the new earth, recreating all things in him and ridding the world of all that makes life miserable today. It's, it's exactly what Jeff cued us into last week when he described Jesus reuniting all things in Christ. That that's the heart of the gospel, this cosmic scope of the gospel where God's gonna set everything right. Well, you get into Genesis chapter three and you see everything going wrong and there's a few reasons as to why things go south in the Garden of Eden, and I want to identify four uh, aspects to what happens in this story because they account for why you and I, as a family of faith, cherish biblical fidelity. And the first reason we cherish biblical fidelity is because we believe God speaks. We believe God speaks. He is a speaking God. And that's a phenomenal reality to who God is, that he would be so kind to speak to us. Because what that tells us is that our God is an interpersonal God. He's a relational God. This is precisely what Satan assumes when he approaches Eve in chapter 3, verse 1. When he approaches her and he asks that question, understand that he asks a question that assumes God has spoken. He knows that God speaks. Satan knows God to be a relational being. So he doesn't come to Eve and challenge whether or not God speaks. He challenges the clarity of what was spoken. He challenges their understanding of God's word. But he doesn't question whether or not God speaks. Because when it comes to the God of the Bible, the reality of this of the creator of the universe is that he is a God who's so kind and he's a God who's so relational in his makeup that he would speak to human beings created in his image. And that's a phenomenal thing because if God did not speak, you and I would never know who he is. If God refused to speak, if he remained silent, we would not know God's character or his nature or his plans or his purposes. We would know nothing So you could invite me over to your house for dinner this week and I could show up and we could sit down for two hours and eat the best meal you've ever made. We can enjoy uh, just an evening together sitting around the table, but if I never open my mouth, you will not know me more had I not arrived in the first place. In order for you to get to know me, I must disclose myself. I must open myself up. And how do I do that? Well, I do that the way you do that. I do it through communication. I do it through speech. When I first met my wife, Kim, we 
were hanging out in a place that had some pool tables and I invited her over to play pool and I was attracted to her. I wanted to get to know her so I went over to the pool table invited her to play and I set it up so that every time I made a shot I got to ask her a question and she had to tell me something about who she was. And then it was also set up where every time she made a shot she could ask me a question and I could tell her something about who I was. I could disclose something true about me. Needless to say, over the course of the evening, I got to know Kim far better than she got to know me. (laughs) But she would ask questions, or I would ask questions, and she would answer. She would speak. And in the interaction of this communication, our relationship began to form. Well, the God of the Bible is a God who speaks. He's a God who wants to be known by you and known by me. And when you read through the Bible, that's very good news because we learn in the Scriptures that there are two ways in which God speaks to us, one of which is through creation. See, through creation, God speaks. He says that he is when we walk outside and we see the mountains, we see the wonder of the created order. There's things that creation bears witness to as it relates to the existence of God, saying that he is. Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, we are told that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above reveals his handiwork. We hear something very similar in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You see, in creation, God says that he is. And perhaps one of my favorite places to discover that God is is a little thing called taste buds. I love the fact that every time you eat a piece of something you enjoy, for me it would be cheesecake or maybe the brisket later tonight, you put that on your tongue and something happens and you, how do you respond? You say something like, oh my God, right? That God is, that God has given me taste buds, creation, the intricacies, just everything in the design of creation testifies to the fact that God is and it's God's communication to us. But it's not enough for you and I to know that God is. We need to know who God is, right? It's not enough to know that God exists. That doesn't really do our hearts any good. That really doesn't do anything about the world that we live in. It doesn't do anything to our lives as it relates to our redemption and our salvation. So it's not just knowing that God is. We want to know who God is. And this is where the scriptures come into play. In creation, God says that he is. But in the scriptures, God says who he is. He inspired a collection of writings through various writers over the course of many years, putting together writings that we believe to be inspired by God according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And in this, these scriptures, these inspired, breathed out scriptures, God discloses himself to us. We read the Bible to hear from God. We read the Bible so that God can tell us who he is and what he is like. We read the Bible so that we're not left to our, great, our guesswork. We read the Bible engaging in the grace work of revelation, God disclosing himself to us. God is a speaking God. God is a relational God. J.I. Packer wrote a book called God Has Spoken, and in it, this question was asked. He says, why, J.I. Packer asks, why God speaks about why God chooses to speak to us through his word. But then he answers his own question this way. He says, the truly staggering answer which the Bible gives to this question is that God's purpose in Revelation is to make friends with us. God's friendship with men and women begins and grows through speech. So we cherish biblical fidelity because God speaks to us. We want to hear what he has to say, and we want to pay attention. And so that brings us to the second reason why we cherish biblical fidelity. Not only is it because God speaks, we recognize that in every story there's always an antagonist, right? 
There's always an enemy. There's always a disruptor in every story. Well, there's an antagonist in the world, and there's an antagonist who shows up in Genesis chapter 3. So God speaks, but then you see another one present in the stories, referred to as this crafty servant in verse 1. And what is he doing? Well, he lies, right? God speaks, Satan lies. That's what's going down in Genesis chapter 3. God has spoken, Satan slithers up in the form of a serpent, and he begins to deceive. He begins to lie. He begins to tempt Adam and Eve to distrust God. Listen to what goes down. Listen to what goes down in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, now the serpent was more crafty. That means he was uh, shrewd. He was keen. He was, he was strategic in the way in which he approaches Adam and Eve. And his strategy in this passage is incredibly subtle, but incredibly effective. He, he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So again, he doesn't question whether or not God spoke. He questions the clarity of what God has spoken. Do you really know what God said? That was the first question the enemy raises in this moment. He introduces suspicion concerning God's word. He raises doubts about the integrity of what God had spoken. Can you really know it? And I know there are some of you who are wrestling with this whole idea of of understanding, of knowledge, of how do we come to know things, how do we come to understand things, and you wonder whether or not, like, why should we draw any conclusions about the Bible as it relates to our faith, as it relates to our worldview, how can we really know things to be true? And, And that's an important question, but what I want to encourage you is that when we talk about knowing the Scriptures and exercising biblical fidelity, we are not encouraging you not to think critically, but we are encouraging you not to think cynically. Critical thinking too easily slides into cynical thinking. And when you slide into cynicism, you have no bearings on knowledge. You have no credible way of finding that which is true, that which is good, that which is noble, that which has been revealed. So yes, we want to think critically when we study the scriptures. We want to think, be thoughtful as we interact with God's speech in the Bible and we examine what he has said. But we don't want to slide into cynicism. So let me just caution you against that. So here, the serpent slides up and he doubts the integrity of God's word, wondering if it could be understood. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And so he raises suspicions about God's good intentions for his people. He raises suspicions about God's good intentions for his people. He's wondering, did God really, he leads with the negative, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, really wants to emphasize that which God said not to do. And in the process, Satan minimizes what God has said. He minimizes the grandeur of what God spoke earlier in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You look back up and you find what the Lord said to Adam and eventually to Eve. This is what goes down in verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's positive, right? That's life-giving. That's life-enhancing. You can eat from every tree in the garden. But the serpent wants to focus on the negative. The serpent, wants to call, the serpent wants to call into question God's good intentions. Sure, he does go on to say in verse 17, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Yes, that's there. But the serpent is accentuating the negative, and I'm wondering if the negative is too accentuated in your life. I'm wondering if you are so focused on 
the restrictions that are present in the Bible, that you can't see the life that is held out to you in the Bible. God's word isn't intended to be life restricting. God's word is intended to be life enhancing. This is why when you read through the Psalms, you come to passages where the worshipers in that book, they would write these songs. And what are they praising God for? They're praising God for his rules. They're praising God for his commands. They talk about God's rules in ways that you and I never do. Because they understand there's, some, there's life to be found in the parameters that God has put into the created order and the expectations he has for his people. It's not because God is some cosmic, cosmic wet blanket. That God is actually a God of joy and a God of pleasure and a God of peace. He's a God who wants life to happen. So you get to passages like Psalm 119 and you read These words from David, it is believed, and this is what he would say. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread. Get this, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness give me life. The worshipers and writers of the Old Testament, they understood that God's commands, God's rules, any prohibition you read about in the Bible, they are there not because God wants to suffocate you. They're there In the end, because God wants to liberate you. He wants you and me to become the types of people he originally intended us to be. It's not unlike what goes down with a fish swimming in their aquarium. And you know if a fish is hanging in its its water and it's confined to that habitat and it begins to look through the glass walls on the aquarium and sees all this open space out in the room and decides to make a break for it. And so the fish starts swimming in a circle as, as fast as he can and then eventually gains enough momentum to leap out of the tank and he lands onto the floor, what's going to happen to that fish? He'll have more space, won't he? He'll have all kind of freedom, all kind of room, but he's going to die. Why? Because he wasn't made for that space. He was made for water. You and I weren't made for an independent, autonomous, ungoverned life. We were made for God. And if we ever try to jump out of the tank, so to speak, we are leaping to our death. And the serpent loves that. So the serpent is going to slither up to you and he's going to whisper lies into your heart about the rules of God, saying that they're suffocating, saying that they're bad for you, saying that God doesn't intend good for you. And you're going to be tempted to believe his lies over that which God has spoken. And if that happens, you will die. If that happens, you will die alienated from the creator who loves you like crazy. So the reason why we're committed to biblical fidelity is because we believe God speaks, but we also believe that Satan lies, and so we want to guard against his lies. We don't want him twisting God's word in our minds, in our hearts, in our church. So he explores, or he doubts the integrity of God's word as it relates to God's good intentions for us, but he also, we won't dive into this one as deep, but he also doubts the integrity of God's word regarding God's sober warnings. 
Listen to what the serpent says to Eve in verse 4. He he tells her, you shall not surely die. You can do what God said not to do. He's not going to crush you. He's not going to kill you. You're not going to die. There'll be no consequences. And so he he questions the integrity of what God said about the consequences for disobedience. And I'm sure that there's many of us who really don't want to believe or were tempted not to believe that there are consequences for sin in the world that there are consequences for sin in our lives. And the serpent is slithering up and he's raising doubt in our minds about the integrity of God's word, saying God's really not going to do what he says he's going to do as it relates to judgment, as it relates to sin, as it relates to all those types of things. So the serpent is approaching Eve and he's raising suspicion about the integrity of God's word. But there's one other thing that he does here that's very crafty, it's very shrewd. He, de- he depersonalizes the character of God. Again, this is very subtle, but it's very significant. He depersonalizes the character of God. To see this, what you've got to understand is that in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we get a complementary portrait of who God is. And there are two words translated in the Hebrew language in reference to God. The first word is called El, and it's the word translated G-O-D, God, all throughout chapter 1. And what is happening in chapter 1 is that God is speaking everything into existence. You get this image of God being this powerful creator speaking everything into existence, saying, let there be light, and there is light. But then when you move into chapter 2, it, the, 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 you see the other side of the coin. You, you get a different picture of who God is and what God is like. That not only is he this sovereign creator speaking the world into existence, in Genesis chapter 2, he's this covenant keeper. He's a personal God. So you get introduced to the name Yahweh is used in Genesis chapter 2. So you see this couplet all throughout Genesis chapter 2, just littered all throughout the chapter. Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. Yahweh El, Yahweh El, Yahweh El. So you take El, the the bigness of God, and Lord, Yahweh, the closeness, the relational, personal dynamic of who God is, and they're married together in Genesis chapter 2. Let me show you. You might want to make note of these in your Bibles. You see it in verse 5 of chapter 2. You see Lord God present there. Verse 7, Lord God. Verse 8, Lord God. Verse 9, Lord God. Verse 15, Lord God. Verse 16, Lord God. Verse 18, Lord God. Verse 19, Lord God. Verse 21, Lord God. Verse 22, Lord God. You get into chapter 3, verse 1. Even there, you see Lord God. But then notice what the serpent says. He says to the woman, did God actually say? What does he leave off? What does he leave off? Well, he drops the Lord. He drops God's personal name. And he does the same thing when he talks about God in verse 5. He says, you will be like God, for God knows he's leaving off the Lord. He's depersonalizing the character of God. And once Eve allows the creator of the universe to be depersonalized, she now becomes vulnerable to sin and temptation. And this is what's going down in her heart as the serpent is whispering these lies to her. You see, when it comes to the beauty of our God, the God that we worship and the God that we serve, we, we must understand that our God is both sovereign and personal. Our God is both big and close all the time. And we open ourselves up to sin and temptation when we begin to isolate one aspect of his character to the neglect of the other. Some of you perhaps are all about the bigness of God. You're all about 
creator God. You're all about the massive, the, the magnitude of God. But there's not much room in your heart for the personal relationship with God, for knowing him closely and intimately. But then others of you perhaps are all about closeness and intimacy with God, but there's not much room for a big God, a holy God, a glorious God, a God who will hold the world accountable for how the world relates to his word and how the world relates to his work in Jesus. That's going to happen. But the moment you and I put a wedge between the character of God, we are taking the bait that the serpent is dangling in front of us. And the moment we do so, we're going to find ourselves in a malnourished, dysfunctional relationship with God. We may draw the conclusion that God is really, really big and he could take care of us. He just doesn't want to. Or we'll draw the conclusion that God is really, really close. He's very personal. He's very intimate with me. And he wants to take care of me, but he's not big enough to really do so. Either way, you're getting a distorted image of God. Either way, your faith is going to be malnourished. And either way, you will open yourself up to a world of temptation. You will open yourself up to the desire of wanting to jump out of the tank and go your own way. Because either your God is too big, that he, but he doesn't care about you. Or maybe he cares about you, but he's not big enough to help you. And so you're going to bail on God. This is precisely what the serpent is, do, is lying about in Eve's ears. And he's very effective. Look at verse 5. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, he's got her attention. He's got her looking at that which God has forbidden. He's got her focusing on that which God um, does not intend for her to have. And it says, then she took of its fruit and ate. But then it also says that she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now understand that, that her husband, that, that Adam, he wasn't off working. He wasn't off doing his thing. This is a gross description. The passage says that her husband was right there with her the whole time she was being lied to. And when you get into the book, the New Testament, 2 Timothy, for example, it talks about how the woman, how Eve was deceived. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. But the man, Adam, wasn't deceived. The man, Adam, was simply complicit. He was curious. He's sitting back, the serpent's whispering lies to Eve instead of stepping up and defending, stepping up and speaking truth, stepping up and dispelling lies. He sits back, watching and observing, perhaps curious to see what would go down. Well, I'm going to let her take a bite, see what happens. She may discover something that, that God's not really going to be true to his word. And if, if she does, then I'll eat some, and then we'll go that route. He's just kind of holding back. He's present, but he's not speaking. He's present, but he's not being faithful. He's present and observing. It's as though he's thrown his wife to the, to the serpent, saying, here, go after her. I'll, I'll just observe from here, but eventually I'm going to... I just want to see what happens. It's a terrible scene. This is why when you get later into the New Testament, yes, it says Eve, the woman in this passage, in this story was deceived, but it never says that about Adam. But what the scriptures does say about Adam is that through one man, what? Sin entered the world. His complicit act in that moment, his silent, his silent compliance present in the Garden of Eden broke the world. And so when God talks about who's ultimately responsible, he points out Adam. 
and says, through one man sin entered the world. But then he also flips the script on that and says, and through one man salvation will come into the world through the man, Christ Jesus, the better Adam. And we'll get to that in a moment. So you have the serpent lying and, and he's effective. And then they're deceived, they sin. So you have, we want to be faithful to the scriptures because God speaks, because, the, the, because Satan lies. And we want to be faithful to the scriptures because we, are, we sin. We want to be faithful to the scriptures because we have hearts that are wired after, that have been formed and influenced outside of Eden. Hearts that bend away from God. And so we sin, and because we do that, we don't want to do that. We want to resist it, and so we study the scriptures to see how that can happen. But when you look back at Genesis chapter 3, you see uh, Adam and Eve sinning in ways that are instructive for us. In fact, one of the reasons why this chapter was written was to help God's people guard against temptation, to help them learn that they can trust what God said and what God intends for them. And so Genesis chapter 3 was instructive for the people of Israel who had just come out of the Exodus and they're being formed as a worshiping missional community called the people of Israel and they're at Mount Sinai. They're receiving the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments and the law of God. And, and Genesis chapter 3 is a story in, designed to help them see you need to pay attention to what God says in the law, in his commands. And so it helps us. We, we know that we sin and we read this story and we begin to see some things about how we can or, or the various ways in which you and I tend to sin. We sin first by way of addition. We sin first by way of addition. What we tend to do in our relationship with God is that we take his word and we add layers to it. We add layers to the scriptures as if God's word and God's standards aren't high enough. We want to add our own traditions. We want to add our own applications. We want to add our own preferences to the scriptures and just adding layers. And when we do so, we do sin. This happens in verse 3. Notice what Eve says when she's rehearsing what God says. It's really subtle, but it is significant. Verse 2, the woman says to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree, trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. But here's an addition. Neither shall you touch it. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die or unless you die. So there's a subtle addition. That's not, God said nothing about that. Now, it could have been good and wise for her to put that barrier there. You know, they don't want to touch the source of that temptation. That makes sense. But the moment, or, but what I think you find here is a subtle addition to what God said that just opens up a slippery slope for all of God's people and how they relate to God's word. And I say that because when you get to the New Testament and the hero of the story shows up, he engages the religious leaders in a conversation. And this is precisely what he calls them out on. He says in Matthew chapter 15, he's talking to some religious leaders. Listen to what Jesus says to these guys. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your what? For the sake of your tradition. For the sake of your additions. For the sake of the layers that you've put on the scriptures. And then he goes on, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said this people honors me with their lips but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of who? The commandments of men. He's talking to religious leaders who had God's written revelation. They had the law but over time they started adding layers to it. Layers that not only distanced themselves from what God actually said in the scriptures, but layers that actually distanced themselves from other human beings. It got so bad that the Pharisees couldn't love another person because of the layers they had put into God's word. 
This is why you read a story like the parable of the Good Samaritan and you have these religious leaders walking by this guy who's been beaten and left for dead. What do they do? They cross to the other side of the street and they walk by. They don't show this neighbor love. Why is that? Because they're operating from their additions. That was, the, that was the norm of the day. Religious leaders wouldn't interact with someone who was a Samaritan. They wouldn't interact with someone who was bleeding and on the verge of death because that, was, that would somehow defile them. And so these additions hindered them from being able to love their neighbors as themselves. And Jesus calls them out on it. So much so that even in John chapter 8, verse 44, listen to what he says. Jesus asserts that that kind of behavior, that approach to the scripture, is actually an imitation of Satan himself. This is why Jesus would say to the religious leaders, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. In other words, legalism is demonically inspired. Legalism is demonically inspired. Every time we add layers to the scriptures, we are taking the bait of the enemy. Every time we expect things from others that God did not expect from them. Every time we add a layer and we hold it up to the same standard of authority and governorship as the scriptures. Every time we do that, We are acting in cohorts with the enemy, the one who's lying to us. So I think this is hinted at in Genesis chapter 3, and I think it blossoms in the Gospels, and I think you and I would be very wise not to be legalistic, but at the same time, legalistic to the point where we're adding things to the Scripture. But on the flip side of that also, notice that we sin not only by way of addition, but we sin by way of subtraction. Not only do we have a tendency to add things to the Bible, we have a a huge tendency to subtract things from the Bible. Eve does this subtly again. Right after she says, neither shall you touch it, she makes that addition. She says, lest you die. Now that's a very soft phrase. She doesn't speak with much certainty. She doesn't speak with much confidence. She says, well, neither shall you touch it. It kind of got this feel of unless you die or you might die if you do that. And so she doesn't speak with much certainty about what God said. And then the serpent jumps all over it, doesn't he? Because in the very next verse, he says, you will, surely, uh, you will not surely die. And he speaks with more certainty than Eve. She is in that moment subtracting. She is in that moment lightening the weight of God's word. She's, she's softening it a bit. And every time you and I soften the scriptures every time you and I curb the edge of the scriptures every time you and I are tempted to take cut out parts of the scriptures every time we do that that, that's one way in which we sin that's one way we give in to the lies of the enemy Thomas Jefferson may be the best example of this Thomas Jefferson wasn't a big fan of the Bible In fact, he had a copy of the New Testament that he took a razor blade to and literally cut portions of the New Testament out. He'd read through the New Testament, and when there were passages dealing with miracles, he would cut those miracles out because he didn't believe that type of thing could happen. When he would read a passage dealing with judgment or hell, he would cut those out because he didn't think that that God would be like that. And so he literally cut out portions of the New Testament, subtracting from God's word and trying to get something more palatable to his mind and more palatable to his understanding of who God is. Timothy George, one scholar who wrote about Thomas Jefferson, would put it this way. He said, while no Bible-believing Christian would be so unwise as Jefferson in actually deleting a part of God's word, 
In reality, we are guilty of a similar offense when we deliberately ignore any portion of what God has revealed to us in Scripture. When we deliberately ignore it, you may not be cutting passages out of your scripture, your copy of the Bible, but you may be ignoring them. You may be downplaying them. And if there is a portion of the scripture, if there is a teaching in the Bible that you are ignoring, that you perhaps are ashamed of, that may be the very portions and the very passages of scripture that you need to give the most attention to. Because you may be sinning by way of subtraction. You may be showing yourself unfaithful to God's word because you were ignoring things, important truths that God has disclosed. So you see here, addition, subtraction, but there's one big way that we sin in this text, and it's the sin of substitution. It's we sin by way of substitution. You see this in verse 5. When the serpent really ratchets up the temptation, he says, if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened, and here it is, you will be like God. And he holds that promise out to them. You can be like God if you do this. He's not good to you. He's holding back from you. You need to eat this so that you can improve your lot in the universe. And the irony of that, 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 <laughs> the irony of that verse is that Adam and Eve were already like God. Genesis chapter 1, God created them in his image. He wired them with the capacity to be in an interpersonal relationship with him. He's endowed them with dignity and purpose. He's made them relational creatures made in his image. They're already like God. They're just not like God in terms of position and in terms of authority and in terms of rulership in the universe. And so when the serpent offers this up to Eve. He's saying, you can take his place. And that's ultimately what pushed things to the edge. That's what drove humanity off the cliff. It was this substitution, this way of wanting to be like God, not in terms of his, his nature and his character, his attributes in terms of loving and kind and merciful, but in terms of his position, in terms of his authority, in terms of the fact that he alone is in charge of the universe. And this temptation of substitution, this sin by way of substitution shows up in our lives in some significant ways. It shows up in how we approach the Bible. Rather than submitting to the story of the scriptures, we want to write our own story. Rather than coming under that which God has revealed in the scriptures, we want to stand over it and we don't want to submit to what the Bible teaches about who God is and what God is like. We don't want to submit to what the Bible says about us now that we're outside of Eden. And so we just come to the Bible and instead we, wanna, we want the Bible to affirm the lives we're already living. We want the Bible to champion the decisions we're already making. We want the Bible to affirm attitudes we're already embracing. We want the Bible to affirm our inherent greatness. But if that's how we're approaching the Bible, understand that is sin by way of substitution. That is sin by way of saying, I'm going to govern my own life. I'm going to jump out of the tank and go my own way. That way only leads to death. We shouldn't approach the Bible the way, or we should approach the Bible the same way you and I might approach the Grand Canyon. Nobody steps up to the brink of the edge of the Grand Canyon, looks out seeing its sheer size and its wonder and glory. Nobody looks at the Grand Canyon and says, man, I'm great. You don't draw that conclusion when you're looking at the Grand Canyon honestly. When you step up to the brink of the Grand Canyon, what happens to you? You shrink, don't you? 
You were drawn out of yourself, aren't you? You were dislodged from the center of the universe when you're standing on the brink of the Grand Canyon. You realize that the universe doesn't revolve around you. And so you shrink. You were drawn out of yourself when you stand on the brink of the Grand Canyon. Well, every time you and I approach the Bible, we should approach the Bible in a way expecting to be drawn out of ourselves, expecting to be swept up in the revelation of who God is, in his glory, in his wonder, in his grandeur, seeing a God who is sovereign and personal, seeing a creator and redeemer all in one, seeing a God who is gracious and merciful, seeing a God who's kind and patient, seeing a God who is holy and just. We are to come to the scriptures, meet with that God, and in the process be drawn out of ourselves. That's how we want to approach the Bible. And only when you and I are approaching the Bible that way will we get to the fourth reason why we cherish the biblical fidelity, and that is because Jesus saves. We cherish the Bible because God speaks. We cherish it because Satan lies. We cherish the Bible because we sin. And because of that, we need Jesus to save. And the story of the scriptures is that God has come to do that for us in Jesus. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. Every page points to Christ in some discernible way, shape, or form. So let me ask you, you step up to the, to the edge of Genesis chapter 3. You read just these seven verses and you're wondering, well, I don't see Jesus here. I don't, I don't see Christ here. Where is he? How am I to be drawn out of myself and brought to Jesus from this passage? And I would ask you to look very closely because I think he's there. I think he's there when you take the whole story of the Bible into consideration. And I think you can hear the name of Christ whispered in this passage when you look at what Eve did. It's subversive, but it's significant. It says that she took of its fruit. She took of its fruit and she did what? She ate. Two verbs, took and ate. Two actions, took and ate. And in the process, broke the world. Alienated us from God. Took and ate. Now you hold on to those verbs that led to the death of mankind. You hold on to the verbs that led to our alienation from God and And you go to the Gospels and you step into a chapter like, say, Matthew chapter 26. And Jesus goes up to the upper room. He's hanging with his disciples. And what are they doing? They're sitting there at the table sharing a meal together. And then Jesus grabs some bread. He blesses it. He breaks it. He distributes it out. And what does he say? He says, take and eat. Those two verbs that led to the fall of humanity would be the same two verbs that would lead to the salvation of humanity. Jesus flips the script on the fallen human condition. He takes that which leads to our death and he turns it, leading it to our life, leading it to salvation. Those two verbs that led to death become verbs of life in the gospel. And you see that pattern all over the Bible. Don't you see it at the cross? Instrument of death. The cross says humanity's horrible. The best person to ever live, they killed. They crucified an instrument of death. But those of us in Christ who've come to Jesus, what do we do? We look to the cross and we don't see necessarily an instrument of death as much as we see the way of life. We see salvation in the cross. Take and eat. Jesus flipping the script on the fallen human condition, doing doing the type of thing that only he can do. This is the gospel. You're in Matthew chapter 26, and right after he shares that meal with the disciples, then Jesus goes where? He goes back to a garden, doesn't he? Only he doesn't go to the the Garden of Eden, a place of paradise and pleasure. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And there he does for us what Adam and Eve did not do for us. Adam and Eve did not set a good example. Adam and Eve did not set the way of life for all of humanity. No, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane to set things right. So whereas Adam and Eve were disobedient leading to death, Jesus was obedient leading to his death so that you and I might live. Jesus' name is whispered in every, on every page. Jesus' name is whispered in every story. Jesus is the point of the scriptures. We cherish biblical fidelity because we believe Jesus saves. And every time we read the Bible, that's where we're going. Perhaps you've been around the Hallows Church long enough to know that by now. Well, he's going to get to Jesus somehow. Well, that's why. I don't want to leave you in any other place or I don't want to lead you to any other person. I want you to constantly see Jesus because he alone is the one who can save us. So you step back. You step back even in those two verbs of take and eat and you see that echoed in the gospel, Matthew 26. You see Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane, submitting himself unto death. And what do you find? You find that, yes, in sin we substitute ourselves for God. But in salvation, Jesus substitutes himself for us. We try to take God's place in the Garden of Eden. But then on the cross, what did Jesus do? He took our place. He went to the cross to bear the consequence our sins deserved. God judged sin. He judged our rebellion, but he didn't judge us. He judged Jesus. That's the gospel. That's why we feast on him. That's why we run to him every time we open the Bible. We want to stand on the brink of the glory present in the scriptures, be drawn out of ourselves so that we might worship this Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us grace as we think through these truths and these realities. I pray that as we turn our attention to singing one more song together prior to sharing a meal together, that your Holy Spirit would continue to simmer and to stir within us so that your, you would have your way within us and around us, that your will would be done this evening. I pray that if there's any heart in this room that's closed to your gospel, I pray that you would open it up. I pray that if there's any heart in this room that is still trying to take your place, I pray that you would bring humility and that you would show them grace and mercy and love and that you would bring new people into your kingdom tonight. God, we ask and we pray that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you have given it to us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.